Hey skeptics, it's Juliana here. A warning just before we get into today's episode. This episode contains references to violence against women and pedophilia, and listener discretion is advised. Eve on the 31st of December 1907 in Sydney, New South Wales. It's the one night a year when ordinary people can let down their hair and do things they wouldn't normally do. As long as it's just a harmless lark and no one gets hurt, the police generally don't mind too much. However, things have been escalating for a while now and the more disreputable of Sydney society, the larrikins who live and breathe trouble, have decided that tonight, if the ordinary are going to be extraordinary, they are going to be even worse. It starts with the regular noise, shouting, singing, musical instruments. Some are played very well, others are just loud. And a few rockets are fired as the clock at the GPO strikes midnight. Fires are burning all over the city, much to the dislike of the fire department. And then... Boom! Suddenly, things turn bad. Explosions are occurring at an alarming rate, causing panic among the crowd. Young women find themselves targeted by the larrikins and are molested, assaulted and even gang-raped as they try to make their escape. In the chaos and confusion, police are unable to assist and... The crowd becomes completely unmanageable. Officers are attacked as they try to stop the explosions and rescue the women being assaulted in the crowd, many of whom will suffer serious abuse before the night is out. And the problems aren't limited to the crowd in the city centre either. Some of the street bonfires begin to burn wildly and firemen are abused as they arrive to extinguish them before they become completely uncontrollable. In one especially nasty incident, a policeman is pushed into a bonfire after insisting that the large blaze be extinguished. He survives, but with serious injuries. Calm is eventually restored as the sun rises on the 1st of January 1908. And the next day, the papers are full of condemnation of the hooliganism and the letters to the editor section overflows with demands that something be done about the terrible behaviour of the larrikins on New Year's Eve. After all, they were the cause of all the trouble. Or were they? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis. fellow skeptics welcome back welcome to the new year and welcome to another 12 months dissecting the mystery that is history 
Before we begin our very first episode of 2024, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge the long and unbroken history and connection to country of the Indigenous people of Australia, especially the Wurundjeri Wathorong people on whose lands I am podcasting today. I'm also excited to share with you that the home of the Skeptical Historian has moved. If you've been keeping up with me on Instagram, you will know that I am now coming to you from Skeptical Studios and have moved out of Studio 4. So for the last time, I would like to give a huge thank you to the State Library of Victoria and Creative Victoria for providing the Studio 4 podcasting space that made launching The Skeptical Historian possible and turned my podcasting dream into a reality. If there's any budding podcasters out there, get yourselves off to the State Library of Victoria and book in a session for Studio 4. You absolutely won't be disappointed. And you can get more information about the studio by heading to www.slv.vic.gov.au. That's slv.vic.gov.au. Click on visit and then scroll down to book a studio. Now, last season, we delved into all sorts of historical stories from Australia and beyond. We explored the origins of the mythical unicorn, examined the mystery of Umbrella Man at the assassination of JFK. We uncovered the string of mostly self-made catastrophes that doomed Burke and Wills, considered the deadly crash of TAA Flight 538 and its ongoing legacy, looked at the mostly successful efforts to defeat bubonic plague when it arrived on our shores in 1900 and looked at the curious case of the Victorian Legislative Assembly's missing mace, just to name a few things we covered. The most popular episode of 2023 was the story of Badge 80 and the infamous Chief Commissioner of Police and later Field Marshal Thomas Blamey, who, as we discovered, may or may not have been caught with his pants down at an illegal brothel in 1925. This year, Things are going to be a bit different here. Season two, The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis, is going to be focusing on the mysteries, half-truths, interesting facts, curious quirks, and let's be honest, outright lies I uncover through the process of writing a Masters of Research thesis. Uh, for my North American listeners, a dissertation. Over the next 10 months or so, I'm going to be examining the role played by 19th century masculinity in the British Army in colonial Australia and most especially how it led to the famous, or should that be infamous, conflict at the Eureka Stockade in 1854. Many of this season's episodes will be focusing, therefore, on aspects of colonial Australia, the gold rush, Eureka itself, and, of course, the British Army in the 19th century. But you know what? It's actually amazing what you can find in places you might not have thought to look and my plan for this season is to be talking about those things that I find that are interesting, but perhaps won't make it into the thesis. I've also got some epic bonuses planned for this season, including my very first interviewed guests. And we won't be discussing 19th century Australia all year. In fact, as you will have picked up from the immersion at the start of this episode, we are beginning 2024 long after Eureka and starting our tale near the beginning of the 20th century, when things got completely out of control in Sydney on New Year's Eve. So, what exactly happened in 1908? 
In the early 20th century, New Year's Eve was still a relatively new celebration in Australia. Late night celebrations had only become popular in the 1890s as street lamps capable of proper illumination began to appear. The first gas street lamps in Australia were installed in Sydney in 1841 and as far as most people were concerned, they were absolutely magnificent, but they didn't provide much more than a pool of light around the lamppost itself. People had been clamouring for proper streetlights for a while and, and there was a belief that a light was as good as a policeman when it came to deterring crime. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but if you're living in darkness, I'm sure it seems that way. In Melbourne, which received its first gas street lamps in 1849, businesses had been required to hang a lamp outside the premises from sunset to sunrise. Now, before gas, these were oil lamps or sometimes even candles in a glass case. And they did very little except illuminate the door of the business they were in front of, if that. This law ended with the introduction of street lamps in Melbourne. Now, even though the first one was installed in 1849, they wouldn't become common in this city until 1857. And there was a similar time gap in Sydney. And I also wouldn't be surprised if Sydney had a similar ordinance requiring businesses to have a light. While Sydney had the first gas lamps, it was the district of Tamworth, which is a little more than 300 kilometres north of Sydney, that had the distinction of having the first electric streetlights, and not just in New South Wales, but in the whole of Australia. In 1888, Tamworth switched on its brand new electric lights, and they wouldn't arrive in Sydney until 1903. However, by the 1890s, a new type of gas light, which was incandescent lamps, gave much better illumination and meant it was now possible for large groups of people to not only gather at night, but also to see and be seen at some distance from the lamppost. So in many ways, it was revolutionary. And it was what allowed New Year's Eve to grow into the large outdoor celebrations we know today. Small celebrations had occurred prior to the major installation of incandescent gas lamps in Sydney in 1896, but they had been more like neighbourhood street parties, usually involving a bonfire, and the church bells would ring in the new year across the city. The fire department in Sydney weren't keen on bonfires, especially in the middle of summer. For my Northern Hemisphere listeners, New Year's Eve occurs in summer in Australia. And as New Year's became bigger and bigger each year, especially following the introduction of the incandescent street lamps in 1896, this Northern Hemisphere tradition that refused to die became more and more of a problem. But we'll get to that in a moment. Prior to the streetlights, it was New Year's Day that was the much bigger celebration and it was traditional for families and friends to come together for picnics at the many parks and gardens throughout Sydney. Musical and theatre performances were also popular and all-day ballroom dancing parties were held for young Sydney-siders to get together. While the more prudish in society winced at the idea of young men and women dancing together unchaperoned, most saw it generally as good fun. The dance halls were actually supervised, despite the hysterical claims to the contrary, and those pesky larrikins were either on their best behaviour or they were kept well away. 
But as the nights became brighter, the New Year's Day celebrations began to fade and the streets of Sydney became the place to be on New Year's Eve. By 1908, with the streets lit up with electricity, the 12-year-old tradition had become so normalised it seemed it had always existed. So how did it go so wrong that year? We'll find out after the break. Welcome back. Now put those fireworks away, please, and not just because it's illegal to have fireworks without a permit in Australia, but things are about to get explosive enough in here without those. As mentioned before the break, by 1908, the celebrations on New Year's Eve had been occurring frequently since 1896 and had also been growing in size. Those bonfire parties occurring in the streets were also getting bigger, as were their fires, and it was becoming a serious risk. The fire department wasn't just trying to rain on everybody's parade. This was becoming a real problem. While a small and well-contained bonfire could be fun, by 1908, these fires were large enough that the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, which was the predecessor organisation of Fire and Rescue New South Wales, actually found themselves needing to attend to extinguish them as they threatened homes, businesses, and alarmingly, lives. However, the people having the bonfires weren't happy about this at all and often made it very difficult for the firemen to come and do their job. Another aspect of New Year's Eve that had become entrenched by 1908 was alcohol. Of course, drinking in celebration of, well, anything, has a long history both inside and outside Australia, but One thing alcohol is well known for is its ability to lower one's inhibitions. Just picture the scene. A large group of increasingly drunk Sydney-siders grouped around a massive bonfire on a residential street where everything is made of wood in the middle of summer with most homes and businesses still hung with Christmas decorations made from highly flammable native Australian plants with the temperature averaging 26 degrees Celsius or 78 degrees Fahrenheit. Honestly, it's a wonder Sydney didn't burn to the ground on New Year's Eve, to be perfectly frank. Alcohol can also make people more aggressive, and this led to some very nasty incidents when the MFB arrived to try and save people from their own New Year's Eve bonfires. In 1908, the firemen frequently had to return to the same street multiple times, as they would extinguish one fire, move off to another, and the mutinous people they'd just left behind on the street would simply relight their bonfire. As they went through more and more ordinary types of fuel, they became more and more dangerously creative with how they would light the fires, and there were riots that night when the police were called to assist with ensuring that extinguished fires stayed out. On that wild New Year's Eve in 1908, a police officer who arrived at the scene of a bonfire to tell its revellers it had to be extinguished was pushed in. The MFB, who fortunately were not far behind him, were able to hose him down and his woolen police tunic probably played a role in ensuring he didn't go up in flames, but he was still badly injured. The MFB was able to put out the offending bonfire, but had to return to the street twice more before sunrise. And really, even if you're mad at the cops, don't push them into bonfires. Not a good idea. In fact, it wouldn't be until the 1960s that the tradition of a New Year's Eve bonfire in Sydney would finally die out. 
partly due to increasing awareness of bushfires and more stringent fire safety laws, and also as new traditions began to move in. I'm also personally at a loss to understand why anyone would want to light a giant bonfire in temperatures of 26 degrees, but I suppose traditions can be hard to shake, even if they make absolutely no sense. But it wasn't bonfires that caused the major trouble in Sydney's central city in the 1907-08 New Year. Another tradition had grown up around New Year's Eve. And that was the tradition of behaving badly, or at the very least, being able to do things you wouldn't normally do. Excessive drinking, as we've already seen, was common on New Year's Eve, as was gambling, despite it actually being illegal Getting loud was an acceptable thing to do, usually through singing or playing instruments, and there was no judgment if you couldn't play your instrument. As long as you were loud, you were welcome. Fights at this stage were not common, although violence was becoming more and more of a risk. To the alarm of the more conservative city elements, young people were out in force, often unchaperoned, and were seen freely exchanging greetings. This may seem like an absurd thing to get your knickers in a twist about now, but separation of the sexes was still very common in the early 20th century and single men and women were not supposed to be out together unaccompanied. However, social norms often had to give way to reality. As in any time or place, young people regularly went out and no matter how much their elders tried, they couldn't always stop them. Youth gangs were also starting to form in the early 20th century and I do want to mention that I am of course aware of the often racial nature of the word gang but I don't use that word lightly. These were violent street gangs, Uh, sometimes they were known as pushers and they took time to establish and while some of them never graduated beyond shoplifting or underage drinking, some of them went on to become very serious professional criminals. The infamous Razor Gangs of Sydney's criminal underworld in the late 1920s, early 1930s had their origins among these youth pushers. But that's another story for another time. Many of these gangs didn't yet have names and were still at the shoplifting, underage drinking and smoking on street corners level in 1908, but It's also true that they were never very far from violence. Fights and attacks weren't common yet, although street harassment of young women was, and the young men from the pushes weren't above cornering a girl or a young woman, even groups of the same, and and decently assaulting them. Undoubtedly, some of these assaults escalated to rape, but like now, rape was drastically underreported and Given the attitudes towards women being out without a chaperone, victim blaming was even worse then than it is today. Also, it's not pleasant, but it has to be said, rape was seen less as a crime against the woman who was assaulted and more of a crime against her father or her husband. For instance, Robert Charles Edmondson, who you may remember as a Tantanula hoaxer, from my episode about the myths of big cats in Australia, raped two young sisters in 1920. One was nine, the other 11. He stole large amounts of sheep and pretended a predator had been stealing them, which, in a way, he was right. 
and he was caught when a group of men found his hidden pens and rough abattoir out in the bush. He was found guilty of both sheep stealing and rape and sentenced to five years hard labour for stock theft and two years without hard labour for the rapes of the sisters, sentences to be served concurrently. The judge felt that given the youth of the two victims, they weren't likely to remember, and of course this was untrue, but was consistent with the beliefs about children's memories at the time. And while both assaults had been shockingly violent, the judge was also sceptical about details given by the victims and doubted their stories, even when there was physical evidence to back their claims up. This is horrifying, but was, once again, consistent with the views held at the time. It was believed that children were natural liars and only adults could be trusted. The judge said he hoped the girl's father would be satisfied with the sentence, which he wasn't. He wanted Edmondson hanged and probably drawn and quartered too. And the judge finished off his sentencing remarks by saying that because they were young, their future marriage prospects were not likely to be affected. And I'll just be over here inventing a time machine so I can go back to 1920 and burn that judge like a bonfire on New Year's Eve. As awful as it sounds, however, Edmondson's sentence and the judge's attitude were not unusual when it came to sexual violence against women. And even now we know there's a lot of judgment heaped on victim survivors. Women who were molested or attacked by the gangs in the early 20th century also tended to experience harsher judgment, especially if it got to a courtroom, because of the perception that by being out in the city on her own, this woman was somehow promiscuous and deserving of condemnation. After all, if she had just stayed home like young women were supposed to, the larrikins wouldn't have been able to attack her in the first place. She must bear some of the responsibility. that. But who were these larrikins? And did that word mean the same thing in 1908 as it does now? I'll answer both those questions right after this break. And sorry to break up your New Year's, but we are back. And before we drop back into the catastrophe that was New Year's Eve 1907-08, I want to have a look at the word larrikin. The origins of the phrase are unknown, but it's a uniquely Australian slang term. Today, it refers to a young man who is a little cheeky, perhaps likes to show off a bit and doesn't have much time for authority figures. He might put a toe or two across the line every now and again. He'll drop the F-bomb on the regular and has a sharp wit, but he's not really a nasty person. He's a bit of a drinker, but probably won't get plastered and he's a good guy to have on your side in a crisis or at any other time, to be honest. If there's anything to be worried about, it's that he sometimes goes too far with his jokes and doesn't know when to stop, which can lead to trouble, but he doesn't really mean any harm. This idea of a larrikin couldn't be more different to the way the word was used in the early 20th century. A larrikin was a street hoodlum, a violent drinker, who not only wanted to cause harm, but relished in it. They were involved in everything from shoplifting to organised crime and were often responsible for violent assaults on young women, even if they were chaperoned. A larrikin was a street hoodlum, a violent drinker who not only wanted to cause harm but relished in it. 
They were involved in everything from shoplifting to organised crime and, as mentioned, were already infamous for their misogyny and violence against women. This was the kind of person envisaged by early 20th century Australia when they used the word larrikin. Although it is worth pointing out that it didn't always translate in real life. Generally, the larrikins came from the poorer inner city suburbs where alcohol abuse and domestic violence were common. And they tended to be young men and boys who had either recently left school or were just on the cusp of doing so. Those who had left were usually either unemployed or they worked in insecure labour as factory hands and other menial type jobs in the cities. And they were generally not expected by society to do great things, nor were they provided with the ability to rise beyond their circumstances. Remember, the early 20th century was still very much a time when it was believed that poverty was a moral failing and that all it took to turn your life around was to work hard. The larrikins, it was assumed, were lazy layabouts who didn't want to work. Therefore, it was their own fault they had no prospects and had nothing to do with the deeply classist society they lived in. These often directionless young men did tend to band together and so it isn't surprising some of them turned to crime or antisocial behaviour. It allowed them to exercise some control over their lives and in some cases it may have provided extra money for them or for their families. So while some larrikins were part of the violent street gangs which disrupted New Year's Eve in 1908, Far too many young men were slapped with the term simply because they had the misfortune to be poor. Now, while some of these poor young men may have been out causing a bit of trouble on New Year's Eve 1907-08, for the most part it was the more organised youth gangs who were at the forefront. These were the larrikins who began assaulting women as the crowds got out of control that night. They were also the people who caused much of the chaos in the inner city in the first place. Those explosions that caused the panic were caused by explosive sticks. Now, these were wooden canes with a metal top that made a small explosion when they struck the ground. On their own, they were a relatively harmless, if rather loud, novelty, like the party favours that others were using to make noise that night. However, the larrikins had multiple sticks, and in a large crowd at night, that was not expecting the sound. They caused chaos. Nobody knew what it was. It could have been gunshots. It could have been a fire going off. It could have been all sorts of things. So people panicked. And of course, this is what the larrikins wanted. They're like people who turn up at a peaceful protest in balaclavas and black coats and start attacking the police. They weren't there to celebrate New Year's Eve. They were there to cause trouble and they succeeded in doing so. It's also not clear how many, if any, to be frank, of the larrikins who had actually caused the trouble were ever arrested and charged over their explosive sticks, or more pressingly in my view, their violent attacks on women out enjoying New Year's Eve. The laws in Sydney were found to be adequate to arrest the perpetrators of such crimes, but whether because there were too many of them or because the police just couldn't identify them, the only recorded arrest was of a man named Michael Albert and he was an importer who had imported the explosive sticks. 
Now, he was charged with importing a dangerous explosive device and he wasn't happy about it because he had documents which proved that Customs had investigated and approved the shipment and that they were not dangerous explosive devices. They were just party favours. It didn't matter. He was fined £5, which is roughly equivalent to 1385 Australian dollars today. Not a huge fine, but relatively significant. To put it in perspective for you, the average wage for a factory worker in 1910, just two years after this, was about £150 a year. So £5 is not extraordinary, but it's certainly not money that most people could just be throwing away. As an importer, Albert may have made a bit more. I can't find the average wage for an importer in 1908. But on average, that was a fairly significant sum to be fined. However, Albert does seem to be the only legal scalp from New Year's Eve 1907-08 and following his trial it became illegal to import explosive sticks into New South Wales and slowly over time those laws would expand until eventually it is actually now illegal to set off fireworks in Australia without a permit partly because of the bushfire risk, but there are also other safety concerns. Multiple serious injuries happened over the years before various state governments clamped down in the 1980s. But what was it about this particular New Year's Eve that saw things get so out of control? The larrikins were not a new phenomenon, and yet everyone, press, politicians and ordinary people, decided that they were the root of the problem. Tough new laws were passed in an attempt to crack down on antisocial behaviour. And there was even talk of banning New Year's Eve celebrations by the Sydney City Council. And it wasn't just idle chatter either. Newspapers had begun calling for it almost immediately, saying it was the only way to stop the larrikins, the dangerous bonfires and the moral depravity Sydney was sinking into. Quite a few politicians got on board as well. And I think the only reason it never went through is it never officially went to a vote. It was a vote-getter for politicians who were wanting to prey on the moral panic, but it never went to any official kind of debate. Now, the first two points regarding the violent street gangs and the bonfires on New Year's Eve, there might be a point to stopping those, but the idea that Sydney was sinking into moral depravity? Seriously. It was and is completely laughable. Or is it? Of course, Sydney was not sinking into moral depravity, but the issues around New Year's Eve had been growing ever since those incandescent lamps appeared on Sydney's streets. The problem was not that the larrikins happened to get explosive sticks that year. The problem was that the culture that had grown up around behaviour on New Year's Eve was one of mild recklessness and it had been escalating for years. People did things they wouldn't normally do and behaved in ways that were not generally seen as socially appropriate. Young people flouted chaperoning rules, people kissed and held hands in public and alcohol flowed freely onto the streets despite laws which were supposed to prevent it. Noise was encouraged, shouting, singing, loud party favours. And this led to further opportunities for people to engage in activities like theft or petty crime, which would be masked by the sound of the crowd. 
sexual harassment too, especially groping, was almost endorsed, well, at least by the men. And as time went on, people became more and more uninhibited regarding their behaviour on New Year's Eve. The culture that grew up around it was one of completely letting loose, of having your one night a year of indulgence. And so it's not really surprising that it eventually got out of hand. Police at the time were understaffed. New Year's was still a relatively new idea, as was this culture that had grown up around it. And it wasn't officially endorsed either. The Sydney City Council would not endorse New Year's Eve celebrations until well into the 20th century. So this sort of behaviour from 1908 would continue with varying levels of frequency. It never became quite that bad again until the First World War. Now, despite all the hysteria, as I mentioned, the Sydney City Council did not ban New Year's Eve, although they did become more savvy about it. Firefighters were stationed at strategic points around the city rather than in their depots so they could be deployed quickly and more police were called in to help control the crowds. Unfortunately, women were, as always, told to take responsibility for their own safety on New Year's and either stay home or, if they really had to go out, to go out with their fathers, brothers or husbands. The larrikins never got a hold of explosive sticks again but they found ways to be continuously disruptive until the semi-acceptance of their subculture ended at the outbreak of World War I. Some of these larrikins went off to war, while others stayed behind to take advantage of the high wages on offer due to the labour shortage. However, when the soldiers came back, it was these men, so able-bodied men who had not gone to war, which, by the way, there's no shame in that. Nobody should ever be forced to go to war. But in 1920s Australia, this was seen as a shameful thing and it was these men who were often the first to be fired from their jobs, which for some of them, this was the first time they'd had stable employment, could pay rent. Some of them had started families, but they were let go so that a true Aussie hero, a return digger, could take their place. And it was these former larrikins who had had work, who were now out of it, and who were being socially ostracised because they hadn't gone to war to further Britain's imperial ambitions, that returned to some of their more violent roots. They formed the dangerous street gangs and pushes of the 1920s and 30s, including the Razor Gangs, which terrorised inner Sydney until laws passed restricting the sale of blades. But throughout it all, New Year's carried on, After the war, the tone of the festival had changed. With so many people dead, missing and wounded, no one had much stomach for the idea of a night of wild behaviour. People were trying to put their lives back together, trying to move on with this sort of new normal. And I think most of us could empathise in some way. Remember how difficult it was to find a new normal after COVID. These people are doing much the same thing, but there's great holes in their families. They've got wounded soldiers who they don't know how to care for and this is long before we understood things like post-traumatic stress and where disability was seen as a shameful thing rather than something that should be catered for and that accommodations should be made. So they everybody would have been struggling. I'm not surprised nobody was into getting wild on New Year's. However, that said, 
those that thought the new years of 1908 were over were wrong. Now, war and then the following depression in the 1930s did dampen the celebrations, but they never stopped them entirely, although they were, as I said, more muted. However, during the Second World War, they picked up again with a vengeance. This was partly due to fear of a Japanese invasion and the idea that people might as well have as much fun as they could before that happened, and partly because of the arrival of American servicemen who already had a culture of celebrating the new year in their cities, and they brought that custom with them when they were stationed in Australia. And it took off like a rocket. By 1959, things were at their wildest again, although the days where it was acceptable to assault women out enjoying the celebration were long gone, and anyone caught behaving in such a way was quickly arrested. A report from the Sydney Morning Herald gives a glimpse of the behaviour common at the time, and I'm actually going to quote in full because it's fantastic. One girl stripped off her frock and began dancing in a French bathing suit, that is, a bikini, a woman turned Catherine wheels until the police stopped her. At Manly, a middle-aged man stood near the bow of the ferry, a bottle in one hand and a paper cup on his head and a white handkerchief in the other hand, singing out, The name's Columbus! While occasional outbursts of violence did occur over the years, 1908 continued to stand out as one of the worst, at least for sexual violence. In 1976, the city of Sydney who had once considered banning New Year's Eve entirely, officially endorsed it. And a New Year's Eve festival, including the now famous fireworks display over Sydney Harbour, has been running more or less smoothly ever since. Apart from 1908, there are two years which stand out for serious misbehaviour. And this misbehaviour was due to increasing social problems in Sydney, a widening gap between rich and poor. So as more and more people crowded in to see the fireworks, some of these problems came to a head, especially, again, because alcohol was freely available. This was in 1986 and 1987. Now, in 1986, the fireworks display became very, very violent and police actually had to deploy anti-riot tactics to break it up. And then in 1987, someone was murdered at The Rocks, which is a Sydney neighbourhood, while watching the fireworks. It's not clear what the circumstances of the murder were or why it happened, but after that, the city of Sydney put their foot down, which people had been asking them to do for a while. This wasn't a new thing. The great problem was that they wanted to reduce the number of people in the street, particularly at a time like midnight where people have been drinking for hours and it had been being suggested for quite a while that an earlier fireworks display was the, the answer. People came to see the fireworks after all. However, the New Year's Eve Festival Council absolutely refused. Midnight was the only time that the fireworks could go off. That was the proper time to celebrate New Year's. However, after the murder in 1987, the council said, we don't care what you think, and they ordered an earlier fireworks display be put on to reduce the number of people in the street. And this is a tradition that continues to this day. And the early fireworks displays, despite the unfounded fears of the New Year's Eve Festival Council in the 1980s, are just as dazzling as the midnight fireworks. And they still go off with a roar and a sparkle each year. 
And that's it from me today. Thank you so much for joining me for the very first episode of season two and of 2024. The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis will resume every second Tuesday and is available wherever you get your favourite shows. If you want to get in touch with me, you can head to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or reach out on social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Join me next episode for another skeptical take on the mystery of this history and find out what's been happening as I write my thesis. Bye now. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound and used under the appropriate licences. The Whistle Funk is by Telsonic. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, sceptics. <laughs>